0: This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to Lends Me Your Ears. It's a film podcast where we see something new in cinemas or on a streaming service and connect and compare it to older films by the same filmmaker or in the same genre. Sometimes we give love to the work of an actor or a screenwriter or a cinematographer. We love the movies here at Lends Me Your Ears. I'm Karsten Knox, I'm a film writer and critic host of the Knox office on CBC Information Morning and my blog. is called Flaw in the Iris and it can
1: be found at HalifaxBloggers.ca. And I'm Stephen Cook. I'm a freelance writer and film enthusiast here in Halifax. And today we are looking back into the
0: dark uh, shadows of noir and detectives and hard-boiled stories of the past with a, with a jumping off point, a new film called Marlowe, now in cinemas. We're going to be wandering around a lot of these uh, these tough guys and gals here on Lens Me Your Ears in the next hour. So I hope you'll join us and, and hang out with us as we ramble on through these tales of crime
1: and mystery. Well, hello to you, Karsten, and thanks for being here for a show that will look at a bunch of films that really kind of hit my sweet spot, and I know that you're fond of this genre too. We're looking at films that, that operate on either side of the law, I would say it's safe to say.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I mean, let's face it, we have gone down these lonely alleyways before. <laughs> so true. <laughs>
1: Dysfunctional
0: Detectives, I think was the last one, and and we did, uh, we've definitely done noir and neo-noir on this, this show in the past, so yes, this, this is not unfamiliar territory, but but, but I guess um, – how to distinguish this particular one? Well, we've got w- uh, one in cinemas right now, Marlowe. And then we're going back. We're going to watch another movie called Marlowe, which is completely – well, not completely unrelated,
1: but it's not like a remake, <laughs> right? No, not at all. <laughs> Same title, different story.
0: Yeah, yeah. So and, – and a few others, some hard-boiled crime fiction that uh, that really – that either we hadn't seen or hadn't seen in a long time. So that's the that's to, on today's slate. But yeah, Marlowe. In cinemas now, directed by Neil Jordan, written by William Monahan, based on a novel by John Banville, and of course the character created by Raymond Chandler. So this is a a story that was written, you know, and and adapted, I guess, uh, post the death of Chandler. You know, they, it's this isn't unusual where a a very popular and iconic character is taken to into new new literary uh, uh, places with a, a new writer and of course now that's been adapted to a new film. Um, and what we've got here is basically an effort to do a straight ahead 1930s sort of Hollywood private eye thriller. It's also deeply indebted to Chinatown one of my favorite films and willing to nod to that in the scenery and the makeup and even the casting. casting yeah. we'll, we'll talk about that as it is to the original Chandler material but unlike Chinatown which I think oozed a certain Nixon era disillusionment and American despair. This one doesn't feel like it's m- about much of anything. It's just a pastiche. It's a movie that makes some of the right moves. I like some of the style of it, but I think it's it's so into these noirish cliches, I almost wish that it was doing it for laughs rather than taking itself so seriously.
1: Yeah, especially when you consider some of the different takes on Marlowe that we've had in the past. We we talked about Robert Altman kind of deconstructing the character and, and the Raymond Chandler mythos in uh, in the long goodbye which sets it firmly in the 70s there's there's no real nostalgia. Marlowe drives an old car from the 40s. It's a, a beat-up coupe of some description in that film and that's kind of the only nod to its origins. Otherwise, it's it's very much a film of its time with a lot of 70s uh, issues and ideas brought into the into play. And uh here, you know, like like you say Chinatown was set in the period of the 1940s and and here we're back in that time period but it's hard to find much resonance here with with anything that's happening right now this, aside from the idea of corruption and power and and bad cops and that kind of thing.
0: Yeah. And it's disappointing because I mean, Neil Jordan is an incredibly talented filmmaker. I mean, this is the guy who did thrillers like Mona Lisa, The Crying Game and The Good Thief, which is a film I think we've talked about here in our remakes, perhaps I can't remember, but we have definitely discussed it. He assembles basically a Frankenstein monster of a movie here that's got a lot of really lovely touches, a lot of talented people involved. But it feels I mean, I wasn't moved by much. We've got a screenplay from William Monahan, who wrote the screenplay for *The Departed*, *The Gambler*, another movie we've talked about, mm-hmm. and *London Boulevard*. These are all movies I like quite a lot. But this feels like a, sort of a, almost like a 1980s TV potboiler, and it, it, you know, but except it instead of being wrapped up in 50 or so minutes, it takes an extra hour to find an <laughs> ending, which it doesn't really convince you, to, convince you to care about. We've got Liam Neeson; he's the grizzled gumshoe. Philip Marlowe; he's wandering around Los Angeles. And the one thing I did kind of enjoy, well, there's a few things I enjoyed about the film, but one of the things I liked was there's the nod to first-generation Irish-Americans. You know, most of the people here or the characters seem to be of Irish descent, and I can understand Jordan being an Irish filmmaker would be interested in that part of the, the story. It's also got a super dense plot, which I was like, okay, trying to figure out what's going on (laughs) half the time, Um, you know, which is fine. I don't mind a little bit of uh, that kind of density. Um, Basically, the story has something to do with a a low-level, you know, hood. Nico, played by Francois Arnaud, uh, he gets run over outside a swanky local club. Marlowe is paid by Nico's married lover, Claire played by Diane Kruger, to find out what happened, and it turns out that the body identified as Nico might not have been him. But if it wasn't, then where is he, and who is the dead man, and what does Nico's sister have to do with it? And what does the club have to do with it? And about half an hour in, I'm like, well, I'm I'm still not really caring. Uh, it's so <laughs> resolutely plot driven and we're never really engaged by what's going on. And you've got actors like Jessica Lang and Cole Meany and Alan Cummings showing up in this in this film. And it's, uh, you know, these are lots of really talented supporting character actors that you would enjoy seeing at anything. And I certainly did enjoy seeing them in this. And I enjoyed the style apparently shot partly in Spain, so it's got that Spanish architecture thing going
1: on. Yeah, because a lot of uh, that—I mean—that was a big thing in Hollywood in in the 30s and uh, 20s and 30s, and I guess into the 40s. And a lot of that doesn't exist anymore. There, it's all been torn down and replaced with steel and glass. So I have to go back to Spain for the for the real thing, I guess.
0: Yeah, yeah, and oh, and of course, Danny Houston shows up, who of course is the son of John Houston, the great filmmaker, your favorite filmmaker, uh, Stephen. Yes, and also, uh, and also, John Houston did act in in a few movies. Including uh, like Chinatown. Chinatown. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so he, Danny, the Danny Danny plays kind of a, a very questionable uh you know, possible villain in this in this piece. And it's like, okay, I I see what you're doing here. <laughs> And I enjoyed I enjoyed these actors sort of chewing through these these uh, all this wordy sort of affected dialogue, which you know is very much in the style of a of a hard boiled uh, thriller from the era.
1: Yeah, for a movie that is aimed so squarely at my sweet spot, it, it is funny how hard I had to work to enjoy it. <laughs> As you say, the storyline is hard to care about. I'm still not 100 percent sure what Alan Cummings role in this whole thing was. He, I guess he's like the shady operator that Marlowe can go to for underground info, who seems to have his, you know, finger on the pulse of the uh, the underworld in Los Angeles. But you also kind of wonder like, does he really even need to be here? He's not really connected There it doesn't feel like he's connected to it. Maybe I missed something, but uh you know, he just feels kind of like a, a MacGuffin or Mr Exposition or something like that. Like I, I feel like uh, you know, it's great to see Alan coming and he's great in that role, but at the same time, not everything, uh, connects up. And, you know, normally that's fine in some of these stories. I mean, in the big sleep, famously, uh, you know, Howard Hawks directed the big sleep with Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall and, you know, thanks to the chemistry between, uh, Bogart and Bacall, which, you know, there isn't an equivalent here, I don't think there's much chemistry between, uh, Neeson and Kruger here. Um, you know, you, you were able to overlook some of the faults, like there's a murder that happens in the big sleep that even Hawks couldn't figure out who did it, (laughs) you know? And then, and then he, you know, so then he gets, uh, he gets Raymond Chandler on the phone and says like, who killed the chauffeur? We haven't, you know, and why, why was he killed? And, and, you know, Chandler goes back over the script. and goes, you know what? I don't know. <laughs> um, you know, just go with it. No one's going to know. Uh-huh. Um,
0: I think it's, yeah. In those cases, I'm sort of like, as long as the, the Sam Spade character or the d- detective Marlowe knows what's going on, as long as you trust him to know, you sort of trust that the complexities of the screenplay will be resolved by the end, even if you are a little bit lost in the middle. And I actually enjoy that feeling of being a bit lost just because you, it, it Takes away any kind of predictability, and I don't know that that is what happens here.
1: No, no, and and I I don't know the novel it's based on. I mean, it's uh, it's not the first time uh, an author has has taken uh, you know Chandler's uh, character to to new places. That uh, there's um, there's the famous uh, Poodle Springs was the novel that Chandler was working on when he died, and then um, Robert B. Parker finished it off uh based on either Chandler's notes or maybe the few chapters he'd written and it turned into a pretty decent novel and then it was made into a pretty good cable movie um that that wasn't too bad and and uh i think James Kahn played uh, Marlowe there and was 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 great in the role uh but uh but here it seems like I, I don't even know what if they have that great a grasp on the character you know he's fairly cavalier about killing late in the film in a way that, that kind of seems to defy the code that he is known for having you know he's, he's like the rumpled shining knight and that it, it seems to go a bit against the grain when he takes action or allows action to be taken that in uh, that normally you don't think would happen and you know a man's got to live by his code you know that seems to be one of the themes of the private eye that's kind of tossed out the window here uh and not in a way that makes this feel unusual or special just odd i think yeah no i'm i'm with you
0: there and you know, it's we've got to mention the fact that uh, actually you brought this up when we were watching this film, uh, Rob Roy, <laughs> yeah. from the '90s, a uh, Scottish, you know, uh, adventure sort of picture, uh, <laughs> a a contemporary of Braveheart. Um, where Liam Neeson and Jessica Lang were the stars above the title, and Lang was Neeson's love interest. And here he's paired with Diane Kruger, who plays Lang's daughter. You know, at least the movie has enough self awareness to have the characters mention the age difference two or three times. Lang herself calls Neeson on it in one scene. And, uh, you know, if she sounds especially bitter, and how she delivers that line, it's kinda it would be easy to understand why, right? This Hollywood does this all the time. Yes. And it's pretty tiresome.
1: Uh, yeah. So Well, yeah. I, I think self-awareness isn't a problem that this film has. It's pretty aware of, of what it is and what it's trying to do anyway. Mm-hmm. And you know, it even drops a reference to the Maltese Falcon at some point in the film. And that's that's not even that's a different, that's a completely different detective by a different author. Um, so, you know, that's, it's kind of a wink that feels a bit out of place. And then we had the whole thing where at the very end, cause a lot of it revolves around this movie studio and, uh, you know, at one point they're, they're filming some movie set in, uh, set in Nazi Germany, and there's a scene of a bunch of Nazis burning books. And I think, uh, is it Marlowe who says hey, well, that Lenny Riefenstahl sure makes some interesting pictures, uh, just kind of took me out of the movie a little bit just seemed like a really weird offhanded reference to me yeah you're right this is a movie that knows its history
0: and is happy to comment on it but again it's like it's not really that funny i almost feel like if if they were willing to to actually try to make it a bit more jokey
1: a bit more tongue-in-cheek uh i would have enjoyed the film more yeah that's a well that brings me back to the long goodbye which is very funny uh you know, and then it, you know, and then it gets serious when it needs to, but Ellie Gould uh, is so funny as, as Marlow in that film and, and, you know, tossing off these offhand remarks and searching for his cat and talking to the, the women who live next door, the yoga addicts who are trying to give him hash brownies, I mean, the, you know, and which just grounds it even more in the 1970s and, and, you know, takes it away from its roots in in a, in a fun way. And, and this, uh, isn't really able to do that it seems yeah well let's talk about another
0: movie called yeah. Marlowe from 1969 which is also set in the present day at the time with james garner and it's it's rentable and available on dvd directed by paul bogart interesting uh <laughs> yes interesting weird coincidence. weird coincidence uh based on a chandler novel the little sister with screenplay by sterling siliphant um and it's one the one thing that this film does have over the new one is is that setting in the present day. It's, so, it's not so concerned about its visual style. But then I would also suggest that that's a drawback because it's an awful-looking movie. It has yeah. that patented oh, yeah. 1960s, like 70s television lighting schemata. All the bright lights in the front of the actors' faces has absolutely no directorial style at all. The only thing it has going for it as far as locations... Is that Marlowe's office is set in the Bradbury building. So all the characters get to walk <laughs> through the lobby of that amazing building in downtown Los Angeles. I've visited one time. Of course, I know it well from having seen it originally in Blade Runner. Um, now, the actual office is a set and not a very convincing one. But at least, you know, they, they shoot maybe three or four scenes of people walking through that that lobby. And it's it's great to see it. Um So here, James Garner is Philip Marlowe in this one. He's smooth and confident, private investigator, happy to give his card to everyone he meets. A young woman has paid him to find her brother. Meanwhile, a couple of men are killed with an ice pick. And the woman is spotted at the scene of the crime, or a woman is. And what does this have to do with a local doctor or the local gangster? And are these seemingly disparate events somehow connected? Pretty sure they are. Yeah, um, so. Garner, of course, is entirely watchable. I really do like the late 60s jazzy soundtrack. I like the uh, two-scene appearance of Bruce Lee as a henchman of the gangster, though the way that Marlowe dispatches him is yeah. pretty dumb. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It, it seems a little bit below Bruce Lee, but
1: yeah. um, considering he was playing Cato on the Green Hornet, it was probably a step up in some regard.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, he's, he's basically... He jumps off a skyscraper while doing a flying kick. I mean, it's it's pretty <laughs> ridiculous. Um, I also really like Rita Moreno, who's in this, and Carol O'Connor as a local cop who's getting more and more fed up with Marlo as the movie goes on. Um, but I did, I can't say I really loved the movie. I guess I just didn't end up caring much about the plot or the characters or their problems. And the fact that the movie looked so bad was kind of a distraction. Um, yeah, what, I mean, I think maybe you were more of a fan of the,
1: the 1969 Steve. I'm more of a fan of it because, well, it doesn't have any pretensions about being retro or nostalgic. I, I mean, it, you know, the, they definitely paint, uh, Marlowe is the last of a dying breed. First of all, it is based on an actual Raymond Chandler story, the little sister. So it is a little more faithful to the, to the canon and it follows the story reasonably well, but it, it updates it with some, some sixties touches and some, some more sort of, um, direct references to drug use and that kind of thing. And, and I, and Garner is extremely charming. Like, I feel like, I feel like maybe this was a pilot or it started off as a pilot for a potential TV series and then just kind of got released because that happened quite a bit Mm -hmm. where where things might start off for television but if you look at paul bogart's uh, track record he's definitely a tv director i mean most of the stuff uh, he did make theatrical features he made uh, a couple other things with with james garner including a a a very interesting western satire called skin game Um, but he also made one of the worst bob hope movies cancel my reservation and then after that it's 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 pretty much tv movies and episodic television from there on in. he made a pretty bad uh, dean martin movie actually dean martin's final theatrical film mr rico um not counting Cannonball run um and uh, and that's and that has the same feel about it even though it's 70s and it's it's attempts it to be gritty it all feels very much like the back lot in television and and uh so i you know i i find my pleasure here and in the, in the In the faithfulness to the original story and and also the the casting of people like carol o'connor and rita moreno is terrific she's uh you know she's she's um you know she's got a real interesting part to play in the whole proceedings and and uh you know she gets to dance uh Uh in the film and and that's that's pretty phenomenal and and uh you know the the james garnerness of it all i guess it's 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 a prelude to to the rockford files and it's hard to go wrong there but um you know, I, 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 you're right. I do wish it had a little more of a cinematic flourish to it. You know, the, the you can't get away from that flat lighting from the from the Studio B pictures that were coming out at this time. But I, I do like the feel of, of Los Angeles at that time. It's kind of the just on the just in the the pre hippie uh, '60s, and and uh, I do like the way that he kind of floats above it and floats through that world of of this kind of hip happening uh, Los Angeles.
0: It's interesting, isn't
1: it? That, like, we like to
0: see films like this and uh, The Long Goodbye, uh, wherein, uh, you know, they've got the original kind of the, the spirit of the original but set in the present day and then you see a movie like the new Marlowe, which is not as much the spirit of the original maybe because it's being adapted from a from a book that chandler didn't write but then goes out of its way to try to you know embrace the visual yes. cliches of of these kinds of movies from from back in the day and then you got something like chinatown which of course did did sort of both anyway. It's, it's all, you know, it's really a case by case basis. What works and what does not is not it?
1: Yeah. Or LA confidential is another example of a film that I, that I think uh, is set in this milieu, with similar characters and, and, and works. I think maybe if, it, if, uh, the, um, Neil Jordan, Marlowe had a more compelling story that didn't feel as much like a retread, uh, then, and, and had some modern relevance and then maybe it would have, uh, gone over a little better, I think. And, and, um, You know, it's a shame because I really like Neil Jordan's uh, last movie, Greta, which came out four years ago, a really great thriller with, uh, you know, really choice parts for uh, Isabel Huppert and uh, Chloe Grace Moretz. And I feel like, uh, like this one is maybe, you know, someone got some funding and uh, (laughs) they decided to make a Marlowe film. It's it's kind of, it feels more like work for hire than, than like kind of a personal vision.
0: All right, so we're back here on lends me your ears, and we're talking about hard-boiled crime films. we're going uh, to detour into a few that are not from Hollywood, and that should be that should be fun. And they they definitely are. Before we steer the uh, the sedan back onto the dirty streets of uh, of, of Los Angeles or or its environs, uh, let's start with Elevator to the Gallows from 1958. This is on the Criterion Channel. Uh, also known as Lift to the Scaffold, directed by Louis Malle, um, and it's uh, it's a film whose reputation I knew about, certainly, and I know it was recently re-released on DVD and Blu-ray, but uh, we I watched it on the Criterion channel, and I really enjoyed this film. It's told... Almost in real time to start with, anyway. And the plot is is thus: Florence and Julian are having a passionate, passionate affair. Film starts with them on the phone to each other. And the plan is Julian, who is a former French Foreign Legion soldier, he will murder Florence's husband who happens to be Julian's boss and make it look like a suicide. Now it goes off without a hitch, but as he's about to leave the office for the weekend where all this has happened, he realizes he's left evidence behind. So as he's heading back up into the building, the security guard switches off the power to the building, trapping him in the elevator. This leaves Florence heartbroken because Julian doesn't show up for their rendezvous and she wanders the the Parisian bars looking for him. Meanwhile, a young criminal, Louis, steals Julian's car, which he's left running on the street. Boy, that was a bad idea. Uh, Louis's girlfriend, a flower girl named Veronique, joins him on the joyride, even though she knows Julian and she knows he's not a man to be messed with But uh, and doesn't like what Louis's doing. But they end up at a motel off the highway in the company of a wealthy older German couple driving a very sporty Mercedes. And, uh, and that's pretty much the setup here. I'm not going to say much more because it does go some really interesting places. Yeah. I mean, I really enjoyed the film for its grit and its style. Of course, it's an early French new wave entry and it feels much more modern as a result. I mean, I think that's the that's the thing about the French New Wave, a lot of those films haven't really aged at all because they're using techniques that are still very much in you know, common use, all the handheld camera and the sort of the gritty sort of uh, you know, uh, social realism in some respects. Uh, but this is a genre film, so it's, it's got that lovely crossover between you know, hard-boiled and, and something that feels like it's actually happening in real time and in a real place. Uh, and I really like the exploration of generational differences between young people versus people who are old enough to have fought In war, lots of conversation about the legacy of war, French colonial conflict in Indochina and Algeria. And that lifts the material from just a classy genre piece or a, or a new, you know, French new wave piece into something more sophisticated and thoughtful. You know, it's one of the things we complained about, about Marlowe. It just doesn't seem to feel like it has any kind of modern relevance, uh, in the storytelling. And this really, this really does feel like it, it is timeless in that regard, um, yeah, and there's also the modern touch of this sort of miniature camera and its photos being done at this commercial developer. I mean, modern, of course, I put that in quotes because obviously that's not happening much these days. But the idea of technology playing a role in the story, that I really liked. And and technology, which was cutting edge at the time. Um, yeah, and of course, Jean Moreau as Florence is especially good.
1: Yeah, this film, and there's a Truffaut film um, from this period or shortly after called The Soft Skin. Le Po Le peau douce uh which is also more of a conventional kind of um thriller suspense film uh more so than what uh what truffaut had been doing and and these they kind of go hand in hand they're just they're they're so focused on on character and and um you know real stakes for these people as opposed to just kind of the the the, the same old clichés and and uh, they they really are, are, are terribly effective at showing like average people caught up in these, these plots that they can't quite pull off. And, and, and and right, like you say, right off the bat, uh, we're having a discussion about war profiteering when, um, when Julian's going into, to to see his boss at the start of the film, who's also married to the, you know, the the woman he's having the affair with. And, and, uh, and, and right off the bat, it's the film has something to say about, you know, the motivations of this character. Julian's a, a soldier, you know, he's, he's seen. He's seen conflict he's he's known for being kind of a, a war hero but in a war of colonialism that he has clearly has mixed feelings about because he's he's uh he's very critical of his, of his boss right before he stages his suicide And, uh, and I, and I, just, I love the, the pacing of the film is, is, it's kind of nail biting when, when you don't know what's going to happen. This is the, I watched it, this is like the second time I saw it. So I, I kind of knew where things were headed, but there were still little surprises for me along the way. And, and uh, I love that it just dives right in. Like it doesn't, it doesn't, there's no exposition. There's no scene of the lovers plotting to, 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 you know, off the, off the husband. It just, you know, we're just you know, we we can figure all that out ourselves. And I, I, it takes, uh, the film, you know, th- accepts that viewers are smart and don't need to be spoon-fed every aspect of the plot. And, and I really appreciate that aspect of it as well.
0: Yeah, you know, I generally uh, am pretty critical when, Hollywood remakes movies, you know, and because they tend to dumb down, especially if they're coming from right. uh, from we, of course, we talked about that in the last episode. If They're coming from Europe or somewhere other culture. They they tend to spoon feed, as you say, uh, the, the story. And I would love to see a, a really clever filmmaker remake this in English, like in the current in the current day. Of course, everyone would have cell phones. So if a guy got yeah. stuck in an elevator, that would not that, that is a plot point that would need to be solved in some capacity. Yeah.
1: <laughs> although a lot of time in elevators, cell phones don't work terribly well. So well, that's true. That's uh, a good yeah. point. And, uh, it, there would have to be some sort of power outage, I think, cause you know, no building turns off the power to the elevator. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Not in these, these days. These days, dating. but in, yeah. you know, in those days, you know, people, especially in France, you know, the work day's over, people go home, you know, they, they, there was a better separation of work life and private life, I think, and H- hence the, just shutting everything down, although just. It does seem like a weird thing to do, but I'm guessing that it's something that happened fairly regular. Mm-hmm. And um, one one aspect of this film that really deserved note is the amazing soundtrack. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, with Miles Davis, uh, you know, I- I'm not sure how it was set up. Obviously, Louis Mal loved music. Music has played a part in a lot of his later films as well uh, with the composers he's worked with. But for this one, they actually brought in Miles Davis and teamed him up with um, some of the top uh, fr- French jazz musicians. I think the drummer was also American. Um, I, I can't remember off the top of my head who the drummer was on the session, but, and I think they just kind of did an improv jazz score, uh, you know, while the film played sort of thing. I mean, maybe there's more to it than that. Uh, I'm probably simplifying it a bit, but, but it's something like that. And, and the results are, uh, well, I mean, it's just so late fifties cool. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and, but it, and, and you know, it, and it's not like a pastiche. It's not like trying to do cool jazz, like I've heard done in, in some, uh, You know later films to to ill effect this is the real thing and it's very au courant and uh and it sounds amazing i've got the album as well at home and it's a it's it's terrific music uh in or out of the film
0: yeah yeah i guess if they were ever to remake it they that would be another problem to solve how do you (laughs) how do you you do another version of that soundtrack because that is just it's classic um So let's move on now to another film that's also on the Criterion channel that I'd never seen before, 1963's High and Low. Now, having seen an Akira Kurosawa picture in our last episode, and we talked about Ikiru, I was interested to check out this one, which is, also, I mean I pretty much all my Akira Kurosawa knowledge has is been around the samurai epics. This is not that. Uh, no. we get but we do get his favorite actor Toshiro Mufune. He's an executive with a delightful name, Kingo Gondo. And he works at, at a lady shoe company and he's being pressured by his colleagues to lower the quality of the shoes in order to increase profits in the short term, you know, use substandard materials, etc. But he'd rather make better quality shoes that last and show profit over the long term but uh, they are really you know there's a lot of of arguing between the executives of this company but you know our our hero as such as he is kingo gondo has a plan to take over the company and he's been investing in it and now he has he thinks he has the plan to do it but it's all you know it's going to require a lot of money and and he's going to have to risk his whole fortune just as he's about to hatch this plan he hears his young son has been kidnapped and there's a ransom he must pay to get the kid back and he's prepared to do it And then he finds out it's actually not his son, but the son of his chauffeur, a friend of his boy. And the kidnappers realize their mistake, but they want the same amount of money. Will he still pay the ransom, even though it will destroy him financially and end his takeover plans? And that's the crux of this, the first 45 minutes of this movie, which all take place in a single set in his luxurious sort of modernist home. Uh, and I really like that, that sort of morality tale and the way it's shot, the way it's blocked. Um, I mean, it's it's transparent, certainly, the mechanics of it, but Mifune's character, you know, He's he's very interesting. He you know he doesn't he wants to he has this. It's just the timing of this is so difficult for him. And then then the movie opens up and it becomes much more about the police effort to try to find the kidnapper. So the the second and third acts here are all about that. And we we get out and see a lot of the uh, the location work is amazing. You get to see Tokyo, I guess, in you know in the 60s, which I don't know that I can I can remember seeing before. Uh, yeah, this is a really special film. Uh, um it is it's thoughtful and and it's it's suspenseful um i don't know that it's actually a noir film in some respects because and I'll and this is my reasoning um you know that we Mafuni's character is a good guy and there isn't any really doubt about what he's going to do he wants to do the right thing and the kidnappers challenge him to do the right thing and of course he will um no matter the personal cost and I just feel like the the kind of shades of gray of noir, the subjective morality is uh, this is a shining armor here, right in the middle. Though, though, I suppose the same thing could be said about Chinatown.
1: Yeah, I, I think in the original novel, the, um, the 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 capitalist who thinks his son has been kidnapped uh, is a lot more hesitant about paying the ransom mm-hmm. once he learns that it's the chauffeur's son instead. And uh, it's you know, it's, it's not a big spoiler. It comes partway through the movie, and then. Before it switches gears, actually, I love how it switches gears just like Ikaru did in its third act and uh, you know Kurosawa definitely loves to to play around with these conventions and uh you know i I feel like maybe they softened that somewhat you know the cops were way more critical of the industrialist in in the novel also the cops i think are a lot more uh, uh you know they're not criticized as much in the original uh 57th Precinct, or um the fifty seventh eighty seventh precinct novel by um Ed McBain than they are, they are here. They, they're a little more held under the microscope a little bit more. And, um, because Curacao was really more interested in social commentary. Um, so more so than just telling a, another crime story, uh, which is the case in a lot of his films, I, I recommend, uh, his early, uh, crime picture, stray dog is a, is a fabulous film about a detective whose gun gets stolen. And he goes on this kind of journey through, you know, immediately after the end of the war journey through Tokyo to, to get his gun back (laughs) because it means either he finds his gun or he loses his job. And, uh, and we follow his journey and the gun's journey. Um, you know, and this has kind of that similar narrative focus that, uh, on, on a goal that, that, uh, that I really love. And, uh, this, uh, you know, he, he really had a, had a knack with these, with these crime pictures that he did. He only did a handful of them compared to the samurai films, but, um, you know, he definitely found some parallels in the in, uh, in the you know in this, the quest for justice and all that
0: kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, and honor, of course. I mean, there's a lot of male shame on display yes. here. The chauffeur who feels responsible for everything and does a lot of turning away from the camera and cowering. By the end, I sort of felt like if that character Aoki, if he stared at the ground in shame one more time, I was just going to lose it. Like it's <laughs> just it's, his character is so you know sub. Uh, he, he's subservient you know in a way that just feels like like and it's really shining a light on on the hierarchical class issues in Japanese society which I thought was really interesting um, you know and I did really appreciate how it becomes a procedural in the second and third act yeah. and we get this tour of Tokyo area and these locations and we dip into the subculture of drug addicts in the 1960s which uh, which was really surprising to me and the villain who is deeply you know, evil. Uh, and when he walks around and the way that the camera frames him and what we see in his sunglasses, hes wearing mirrored sunglasses, it's really cool. Like, and very creepy,
1: but you know, at least we understand his motivation. Yes, we do. So he's not, he's, he's evil, but he's, you know, the, he, he gives a speech at the end that, that, Seems to uh, at least under, understand where he's coming from. Yeah, and that's
0: and at the end of the day, I think this is what this film is about. It's almost like a cautionary tale about conspicuous consumption yes. and the effect that that has on other people who are less privileged. Because you're right, the film does have sympathy for the villain of the piece.
1: Yeah, well, the fir- and the first half hour is this critique of capitalism, where the, where the share you know the the, the board of directors they all want to focus so this company on making cheap shoes that are going to wear out quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, uh, King Ogondo is, you know, wants he, he just being associated with something like that just would be bring shame upon his family basically. Like it's was like, he wants to make, you know, sure it won't make as much money, but he wants to be known for making a quality product, not just for churning out more profits. And I, I love that, uh, that conflict, you know, that the, 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 for a long time, the, the phrase made in Japan used to be a, a synonym for cheaply made you know disposable goods and uh, you know he he didn't want to be uh, a- part of that cliche, I guess. And, yeah. And, uh, and then it, the fact that they weave all of this into the, the kidnapping plot so seamlessly is, is amazing. Yeah, for sure.
0: Uh, let's talk about one more movie yeah. here in this segment, and that's The Outfit, com- coming back to uh, to North America, to Hollywood. and This is the 1973 version, incidentally, not to be confused with the recent thriller called The Outfit, the one starring Mark Rylance, though that also might qualify as a hardboiled thriller. I haven't actually seen it, but anyway, this 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 is the 1973 film with Robert Duvall, based on a novel by Donald Westlake, the same character as Point Blank payday and parker and uh yeah and it stars duval and joe Don baker and duval plays a character named macklin who's just out of jail finds out his brother who's also a criminal has been killed by hitmen working for a criminal organization called the outfit macklin figures the outfit now owes him restitution and teams up with his girlfriend played by karen black and a former compatriot joe Don baker to make life difficult for the outfit's operations they basically start hitting casinos and other segments and, offices uh, in, in as part of the Outfits Network, eventually finding their way up to the Outfits boss, Mailer, played by Robert Ryan. And he said he'll pay them off, but then he sets them up and it's all out war. This is actually a lot of fun. It took me a while to sort of tune into it uh, because it's sort of slow going to start with, but I have to believe Quentin Tarantino has seen this movie. It feels like his kind of a picture. You know, it's all about men of violence and the women who end up heartbroken or dead as a result of the, the bad things that the men, the men do.
1: Yeah. And uh, I mean, talking about, uh, criticism of, of capitalism here, we get to see how it, you know, a capitalist system that operates outside of the law and completely without any kind of regulation, it, it, it more or less regulates itself and there are codes and, and, uh, you know, references to how you're supposed to behave in this, uh, in this world. And I feel like, uh, the outfit, the outfit does a great job. Of just setting up this world that Robert Duvall lives in where, you know, you know, people steal from each other and, and, and they're able you know, to kind of forgive them if if they'll do this and, and, you know, or pay back this debt or whatever. And, and, and there's that weird sense of honor that, that, that needs to be fulfilled. I mean, it comes out in point blank as well with Lee Marvin just wanting his money Uh from the heist that he was, uh betrayed in and uh you know going up to the very upper echelons i mean it's very similar story-wise to to point blank but but robert duvall i think grounds it in in a big way he's 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 so down to earth and so uh uh i don't know if humane is the word because he's pretty tough and 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 vicious when he needs to be but it's very efficient he, you know he knows the stakes he knows what he's up against and he's very practical and and uh and a, and a kind of smooth operator, and it, this is only—I think this is only the second time he toplined a movie following *The Godfather*. And, and he's terrific here.
0: Yeah, now, this is the problem, I think. This is where I disagree with you, Stephen. Okay. I think Duval is miscast. I think he's made a career. This Maybe it's just because I'm seeing it in retrospect. But he's made a career playing complex, vulnerable, sometimes troubled characters. Sure. And I just had a hard time buying him as a hard man, the kind of role that Charles Bronson or Lee Marvin could have played. Um, you know, Joe Don Baker, though, is he's I, I think of him more as a tough guy actor. And I think he actually is really good here. And I think it helps, actually, to have them paired because baker is is somehow more taciturn and and a little more you know hard line where duval just feels a little i don't know i don't i don't quite buy him when he is practical and hard you know needs to do tough things and he he of course he abuses his his girlfriend and it's just like i just didn't quite buy him as this guy um but you know everyone around him is I guess, in my head, works. Uh, definitely Robert Ryan. He brings a lot of gravitas oh, yeah. to
1: the villain. He's, he's perfect as the crime boss.
0: Yeah, and one of the other villains of uh, the crime uh, Gunsles is Timothy Carey, who is an actor we've talked about quite a bit on this uh, show, and he's great in his role. Um, and Joanna Cassidy, a very young Joanna Cassidy, who I ha- don't know if I've ever seen her in a film this early. I think
1: this career. is her first screen role.
0: Yeah, she's great. Um, you know, she only did a couple of scenes, but she's great. And of course, Eli. Aisha Cook jr. here in a small role he had a of course a hell of a career after the Maltese Falcon and the big Sleep, and those early roles basically guaranteed filmmakers making thrillers would want to use him in their movies because he brings that that uh you know that that legacy i guess or that that uh pedigree and uh here he's he's in this and he's in a movie we're going to talk about shortly called Hammett uh and it's great to see him too,
1: yeah, and we also get Marie Windsor, who is kind of the queen of film noir she's in so many great uh crime films of the of the 50s and and she's terrific here as as Madge who I think runs a bar and gives uh gives doles out some information that uh Macklin needs. And I I yeah, Duvall I, I recommend seeing his uh, his first starring role after The Godfather Badge two seven three, I think it's called he I mean he play, he plays he's playing a cop who's after a, a, a crazed killer, you know, the usual kind of setup. It's it's nothing special. It's it's a fairly routine cop picture, but he's very good in it. And it's got a great chase scene with a bus. So so that doesn't uh, – if, if you can find badge 273, I highly recommend that one.
0: Yeah. Now, the outfit is – I also would recommend to folks, um, you know, despite my concerns around Duval, I think, it just has like – There's a few action scenes and of course they're done. It's all feels like it's done very much like in camera and in, you know, in the place. Like there's a moment where a car runs into a couple people uh, where Karen Black's driving this car and it's just like the stunt is such that you just like you wince when you think when you see it because you're like these huge cars are plowing into people. It's like, oh, God, they actually did that. And it's. Woo, yeah, yeah, it's it's a really hard-bitten, tough movie, and I, I really liked it. I said, overall, I really liked it. And that's, that's The Outfit from 1973. Hi, I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson, host of The Food Podcast. But you know what? It's not just about food, it's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale, how about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher.
1: So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. And we're back on Lensby Rears with this look at hard-boiled crime pictures, inspired by Marlowe in theaters. The new uh, look at the Raymond Chandler hero, Philip Marlowe, as directed by Neil Jordan, a director we're quite fond of. And, And it's set in its, you know, in the original time period, the nineteen thirties and forties, and 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 now we're going to look at two more films that uh, that adhere to that uh, vintage crime time period timeline, if you will, uh, but uh, that that have some some interesting uh, directorial visions by by two really really fine filmmakers, and that's uh, Hammett, directed by Vim Venders and produced by Francis Ford Coppola, uh, from nineteen eighty two, and also um, Robert Altman's Kansas City from nineteen ninety six. Ah, uh, kind of a late career gangster picture um, with uh, with some very strong female roles for its leads Jennifer Jason lee and Miranda Richardson. And I guess we'll start with Hammett, uh, going back to nineteen eighty two. A, a troubled film uh, with uh, that's 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 not perfect, but it's it's interesting in that it actually puts uh, the author Dashiell Hammett uh, who wrote the Maltese Falcon and of the Sam Spade stories and makes him a fictional character within this uh, world of San Francisco where he did in fact live and, and uh, for a time was also an operative for the Pinkerton agency. And, and so some of those biographical elements Come into play uh, in this fictional story uh, as he gets wrapped up in in the search for a, a Chinese woman who holds the the key to a mystery that we find out as as the film unfolds.
0: Yeah, this was my first time seeing it, and I'd heard, of course, Wim Venders. It was his first film in his in English language Wenders' a f- a successful career in nineteen seventies, making features in Germany, including uh, the American Friend, which we've talked about on this uh, another kind of gritty gritty film that uh, we've talked about on this this podcast yeah. and and uh, this one he made for Coppola's Zoetrope Studio and if the rumors are true he I guess kind of lived to regret it the studio took control of the film from him and Coppola himself is said to have directed some of it um Wenders did uh managed to write his career and went on to make Paris, Texas. So, you know, maybe it was all worth it. But uh, yeah, it's this, uh, as you said, this fictional account of the portion of the life of uh, Dashiell Hammett, who everyone calls Sam here. And, um, you know, it looks pretty good. There were elements of the production design, recreating nighttime Chinatown in San Francisco circa 1928. Uh, But it does deep dive into some noir cliches that, makes it feel in many respects inauthentic um, it's also not terribly coherent or suspenseful the plot such as it is has hammett working away in his crappy apartment writing for magazines at a penny a word and he's played by frederick Forrest, who is really one of those actors who re- i really wished had been a bigger star than he was he's so magnetic yeah, he's, great he's great here, great here. Um, he lives above a very glamorous librarian played by marilou henner Uh, And then one day, an old friend uh, from his Pinkerton days shows up, Jimmy Ryan, played by Peter Boyle. He's a guy looking for help on a case involving a teenage prostitute named Crystal who works somewhere in Chinatown. And before long, Hammett uh, has lost the only manuscript for his novel that he had. He's dropped it, and he's also lost Jimmy Ryan, who disappears into the night, and he gets embroiled in a whole blackmail plot. Now... I mean you know while i I recognize some of the production design is cool, um it's also a little bit of that like nineteen eighties uh there's something very eighties about it. It has that its own special signature, like <laughs> yes. like Mary Lou henner wearing a black latex raincoat at
1: one point, and I'm just like, oh yeah that it's nineteen eighty two really <laughs> here yeah, and it's very stage bound a lot of the a lot of the even the scenes that are outdoors are on elaborate sets, yeah that uh are also, built a great expense and a big reason why this helped bring down Zoetrope.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it's it's too bad because there are, I mean, there's great per, uh, actors on board here. Uh, you know, I like the, the David Patrick Kelly, for instance, as a thug. Roy Kinnear doing his best, Sydney Green Street. Um, Sylvia Sidney, who is, of course, a, uh, you know, a veteran of, of noir films. And, and Sam Fuller apparently even shows up. I missed him, but I, I saw his name in the credits.
1: Yeah, he's, he's, uh, I think he's like a bartender or something like that for about 30 seconds or something like that. I definitely, I definitely, uh, spotted him with his cigar and that gravelly voice. He's hard to miss. And, and yeah, I love the David Lynch connection. We've got, uh, Jack Nance, a racer head himself, uh, and, and, and also other parts in, in David Lynch films and, and TV, uh, shows up as kind of a seedy, uh, he's a fan of hammett's but he's also got a seedy side to him that i don't want to go into too much because it's part of the plot but uh and then uh, david patrick kelly of course was one of the brothers on uh, twin peaks and uh, and he's very creepy here as the punk mm-hmm. i think a, his only cre- he's credited as the punk and he's after hammett and and after crystal because he's part of this kind of blackmail plot that yeah. uh, comes develops as the film goes on he's
0: always uh, i always think of him in the warriors warrior oh yeah yeah come out to play <laughs> you know, or or maybe the commando. He he was one of uh, he. You know he, he he Schwarzenegger took care of him. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's there are things about it that really don't work, and I you can see that that Wenders just didn't have this kind of sense. You don't get the sense of control in the storytelling that he had, like in Paris, Texas, or some of his other films. Um, but I did also appreciate in in weird ways, and I think this is because there's at least one or two sort of dream sequences in this film where where Hammett is unconscious and, and we're seeing into his subconscious. But um it it reminded me a bit of Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut, which tried to turn London into New York and made everything weird and dreamlike. And of course, as I said, this is nineteen eighty two, so there's this there is a little bit of that strange um I don't know, almost hallucinogenic quality to it.
1: Yeah, the screenplay had four different writers, and I think it kind of shows because <laughs> it does. It does have kind of a patchwork feel about it. Especially, well, like like you say, we get to you know Roy Kinnear's uh, appearance, and he's just doing a Sydney Green Street impression, and it it it's a bit jarring. Like it it like you know what he's doing, and and they they make fun of the use of language in the Hammett books, like when he he refers to the punk as a gunsel. And, uh, you know, and of course when they used that word in the Maltese Falcon, uh, everyone assumed it meant like a hood, like a, uh, you know, just a, just a cheap henchman or whatever. And in fact, it, it, it didn't, it was slang that actually, you know, was, was, was a derogatory term for homosexual, but because it was so obscure, nobody knew that. Mm. And that's how they got away with using it in the, in, in the Humphrey Bogart film along within the novel. And here they make fun of fun of that fact here with other obscure, lesser known terms. And and I I appreciated that aspect of it. But but there is a bit of a patchwork quilt to it. It's still a film I enjoy. I mean I own a copy of it on DVD and I return to it every every couple of years. Uh mostly for Frederick Forrest, I think, because he he does look a lot like Hammett. Like the resemblance is uncanny and he's very good at at playing, you know, the writerly version of a detective like, you know, he's not a detective, but he well, he was he worked for the the, the he was a continental op, as they say, for the uh, the Pinkertons. But 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 here, you know, he's he's witty and smarter than most of the people he's dealing with. And I, I like that aspect of it. But but it, it it is not a perfect film by any stretch.
0: No, no, it isn't. I don't know that I will revisit it, but I'm glad to have seen it at least once. Um, And uh, yeah, so let's move on to our final film of the show. And this is Kansas City, as you mentioned. This is uh, from 1996. It's available to be watched on uh, Amazon Prime. And it's by Robert Altman. And I guess he had made other, he's made other crime thrillers. I mean, The Player uh, is actually technically a crime thriller. Well,
1: Thieves Like Us is is kind of Bonnie and Clyde film from the 70s, which is the most obvious kind of antecedent of of this one yeah and that's
0: one I have yet to see Um, but watching Kansas City was uh, was I mean for the most part it's a pleasure it's set in the 1930s it's a story of a woman named Blondie played by Jennifer Jason Lee with terrible teeth uh whose (laughs) husband johnny played by dermot mulroney uh thought he'd steal from a wealthy african-american visitor to the city but this visitor is a guest of a local gangster seldom seen played by harry belafonte that's a great handle uh who tracks down uh johnny and uh basically uh you know you know he's going to threaten his life uh blondie's obsessed with gene harlow she kidnaps carolyn who's a local politician's wife played by miranda richardson in the hope that she can influence the politician uh, played by michael murphy to do something to help johnny who is in the clutches of this gangster uh, as it turns out seldom seen just wants to talk to johnny apparently all night like they just nothing happens <laughs> nothing happens i mean apparently belafonte um, improvise most of his dialogue which makes sense because most of what he says doesn't it doesn't even make any kind of like it just doesn't forward the plot or anything it just is words filling the air vaguely threatening to this this young hoodlum but it sounds cool because it's coming out of Harry Belafonte that's right yeah it sounds (laughs) cool and this is while Blondie and Carolyn drive around they go to the pictures they find telephones so that Blondie can make more demands of the politician and and you know try and make something happen so that she can get her her beloved back and Carolyn basically just stays high on laudanum the whole time she's constantly (laughs) taking swigs out of this little bottle. Um, And now as typical with an Altman film, the cast is sprawling. There's a subplot with a 14-year-old girl who's been sent to the city to have a baby. And there's Blondie's sister, Babe, played by Brooke Smith, who's great and I wish she was in the film more, um, and another Johnny, <laughs> married,
1: <laughs> to Bae. married to both married to Johnny.
0: Yeah, they're both married to Johnnies. <laughs> one is married married to Babe. The other one is married to Blondie. And uh, the other Johnny is played by Steve Buscemi, who's trying to influence a local election by getting a lot of like street people and homeless folks uh, into the uh, voting. You know, to vote for a certain person, and and so these are all the sort of the the background to all the stuff that's going on here. And then and then there's the music. Altman keeps cutting to the local. Jazz bar that that the gangster seldom seen runs the Hey Hey Club and uh, and and so local and so jazz stars of the '90s basically play Count Basie and Coleman Hawkins and Lester Young uh, Joshua Redman shows up and you know you, you you I recognize some of those those musicians and I like the music a lot I mean it's amazing and it sort of it bleeds through the entire film though Altman's somewhat unfocused way with a story makes these frequent cuts to the band playing kind of it's, it just Slows the movie down, a movie that doesn't need to be slowed down. By the time the third act comes around, I was just begging for something to happen. And you know me, I I like a a plot, and this one is not plot-concerned. And I guess I just didn't care enough for Blondie and Carolyn to really be invested, because neither of them really changed. They have no character arc. Neither of them changes over the course of the film.
1: Um, Blondie's hair changes. (laughs)
0: That's true. Blondie's hair does change. Yep. Yeah. She goes full Gene Harlow at one point. Uh,
1: this is, uh, I love Altman and this is a film that I did not love uh, when I saw it, when it came out. Uh, you know, it was a big deal to have, Altman's doing a movie and it's about jazz in Kansas City. It's going to do for Kansas City what Nashville did for Nashville. And uh, it doesn't quite do that. Uh, but I do like it more now having seen it uh, this is probably the third time I've, I've watched it. it is a film that has grown on me over the years i found jennifer jason lee kind of annoying the first time i watched this film and watching it now you know with the foreknowledge that she's basically trying to be gene harlow uh her, her performance uh, works a lot better for me than it did uh, initially and, and of course the integration of the jazz is fantastic and they actually seem to get jazz right uh w- w- as opposed to say like Babylon, which I thought got it horribly, horribly wrong. Uh, and, and here, uh, and, and, and Altman didn't want them to just imitate Lester Young and, and Coleman Hawkins, uh, but somehow they were able to evoke that spirit without being slavish, uh, to, uh, to recreating that era. And, uh, I, I found that the pieces fit, they they don't fit together quite, uh, as well as in say something like Nashville, which is, uh, even more sprawling and adventuresome, but I, but I did appreciate them a lot more. And, and, uh, but you're right. Miranda M- Richardson doesn't have a whole lot to do. Um, you know, just being bombed out on Laudanum the whole time of the film and, mm-hmm. and you wonder why it, she has so many opportunities to just get away, uh, and, and get away from this, um, you know, crazy person who's basically abducted her and for, for reasons that. You know, like really, is Johnny really worth all of this? Um, and, and so, you know, it's, it's not the most coherent of, of, uh, Altman's films. Uh, but at the same time, I do like the shaggy dog kind of aspect to it a lot more and, and knowing a bit more about Altman's, uh, own personal connection to this story because he did come from Kansas city and this is kind of loosely based on the stories you heard while growing up. Wraps up our look at some crime films recent and from years gone by. It's focused on Marlowe by Neil Jordan. I, I, I'd say it's still worth seeing, especially on a big screen where you get the most out of all that production design and, and some of those great character parts. But maybe check out some of these other films as well for, for a better idea of what uh, a really great crime picture can be all about. Uh, I'm Stephen Cook, and you can find me on Twitter at NS underscore
0: I'm also on Twitter, and I'm the name of my blog. It's called Flaw in the Iris. That's where you'll find me. Of course, Lends me your ears. It's on Twitter too,
1: and on Facebook. So you can always reach us through those means. And of course, thanks as always to CKDU for airing us every other Tuesday and allowing us the use of the production facilities and the Village Soundcast Network, which makes us sound so great every week. Thanks, and here's looking at you, kid.